This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. So we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Micah. And if you'll remember last time, uh, we reminded ourselves that Micah is an Old Testament prophet. And in order to understand Old Testament prophets, uh, we have to review some history. So as a brief recap of history, uh, in 700 BC, when Micah was prophesying, Israel had been separated into a northern and a southern kingdom by a civil war that preceded his time by 150 years. So 150 years before him, there's a civil war that split the country. Now there's two. During Micah's time prophesying, the northern kingdom would actually be conquered by Assyria and dispersed throughout its nation. They'd be completely wiped out. And so when Micah references the northern kingdom, he's both um, speaking about what he's actually seeing throughout the book of Micah, but he's also declaring it to the southern kingdom in a peculiar way. He's reminding them of what they're seeing has theological implications. The Assyrians were on the doorstep of the southern kingdom as well. They were literally besieging Jerusalem. So Micah may have been walled up in Jerusalem with his people with the same army that defeated their um, sister kingdom that's walled them in. However, ultimately, this Micah is prophesying not about the Assyrian judgment, but he's prophesying to the southern kingdom about a judgment that's going to come 120 years after that. Because the nation that will actually destroy Jerusalem is going to be the Babylonians. Now, what's interesting about the book of Micah is if you read these Old Testament prophets, you have to think to yourself, these are God's people, right? Why is it that all of these other nations are just whooping up on God's people? Where is God? That's the question. And Micah gives us a front row seat or an answer and explains where God is, why God is letting this happen. And ultimately, the reason is that God's people have betrayed him. We looked at this last week. They'd been unfaithful to the covenant. They had abandoned them. They had worshiped other gods. They have said that they would worship him, but really they worshiped themselves and they trusted in their own armies and they made decisions contrary to what God told them to do. And in some sense, God is trying to show them just how much patience he's had with them. There was a civil war 150 years before. And from that civil war to when Jerusalem would actually be conquered was 300 full years of God's patience. And so Micah is prophesying not that God's patience is wearing thin, but how deep the hurt runs. You see, that God's in kind of a toxic relationship, if we can use modern terms for that. Um, his people that he's entered into relationships with, uh, they continually betray him over and over and over and over and over again. And Micah's job, and many of the Old Testament prophets, is to make just how clear that hurts God. One of the things that made this relationship so toxic that we're going to see today in chapter 2 is that the people believed that their material prosperity 
means that they must be right with God. That their success meant that God was on their side. And I wonder if we do the same. Money and property that we've acquired are proof that we and God are good. Or else why would I have succeeded in this venture of mine? Christians often believe that in general, material prosperity means that God approves. Of course, material wealth and prosperity doesn't automatically prove that you're wrong with God. There's plenty of examples throughout Scripture where God blesses abundantly those who are faithful to Him. And yet in Micah today, what we're going to see is Micah turn those tables and say, do you think that you're those faithful people? How faithful are you really? You see, for Micah today, he's going to say that this material wealth comes with dangers, significant dangers. It predisposes us to a sort of blindness to ourselves and makes us assume that we're in right standing with God. So Micah is going to highlight two of these dangers today, but before we get into that, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Micah chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter, Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord." Do not preach, thus they say. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my, splendid, my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gates going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So Micah is going to be talking to us today about the dangers of material wealth. We might just at the forefront acknowledge uh, that we're all wealthy. Usually when we make these comparisons, we compare it with the wider world, which of course is fine. But I would argue that even uh, in comparison to the United States of America, there's not many in this room that could consider themselves poor. 
myself included. Even in the extravagant riches of the United States, we're considered wealthy. Maybe this is the first reason that this passage should uh, cause our ears to be attentive. A second is what I mentioned before, is that it is written to God's people. When you hear this sort of judgment against God's people, it should cause you to wonder, how can God say such harsh things? Where are the promises and what am I to do? Now, again, we read these passages and we so quickly want to apply them to the world outside, those who oppress and steal and other things, those enemies of God, those who abandon God's word. But this is written to God's people. Their own self-deception wrought by their wealth. So this first self-deception that we're going to look at, Mike is going to talk about two ways that wealth um, causes us to deceive ourselves. And he was seeing this in his own day. The first one is that wealth affords an unhealthy amount of self-approval. And I've already hinted at this a little bit. In verse 1, there's a woe pronounced against those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. You know, beds are intended for rest, right? Like, you're supposed to sleep, uh, be ready for the next day. But these people are up, pondering, thinking, consumed with worry and anxiety, angst and excitement over their own plans. Now, this alone should stand out to us because these people aren't resting. And in verse 10, it's clear because God says, yeah, when you function this way, there is no rest here. But the really shocking thing is not that they're up all night. It's that these plans that they have made, they're actually waiting to execute until the morning. Now, here's why that matters. Generally speaking, People that are devising evil plans don't want to execute them in daylight for fear of being seen. These people, though, have deceived themselves. And it seems like it's probably a pretty large group. It's a cultural phenomenon where they can work this evil in their heads. The very thing that God calls evil, they can say is approvable, so approvable that it can be done in the daylight, that it can be done in the morning, and it can be done with a high hand. What exactly are they doing? In verse 2, it says they covet fields. They take or seize them in houses, and they oppress a man and his inheritance. You see, in Micah's day, because of the war surrounding them, there was some economic strife. And whenever there's kind of um, economic and political strife, there's uh, opportunities of, for people to take advantage. People who had played their cards right and maybe had more capital to invest. So they see their brothers or sisters struggling, and they decide to offer them a way out and at an extravagantly good deal for themselves. Wealthy land barons saw an opportunity for personal gain and took advantage of a situation where others would lose their very livelihood, dignity, and ability to work as God had made them to. You see, I think we would all believe that coveting, stealing, and oppressing are evil things that should be done in the dark. But Micah is highlighting that because of the wealthy's self-deception, these same activities can be executed in the day with impunity and maybe even a little bit of pride. Lenders who purposefully take advantage of others so as to oppress them more. 
the taking of land, property, and wealth from those who have no ability to defend themselves through law, lobbying, or leverage of markets. Or maybe it's just simply sweet-talking a good deal. I think this is where this hits home most for me. You see, I'm always kind of looking for a deal. Margaret and I are looking for a house right now, so of course we're looking for a deal. When I bought cars, I want to look for a deal. I use a website called Camel 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 to figure out the lowest prices historically on Amazon so that I can make sure that I get a good deal. Of course, it isn't wrong to want a deal, per se, to be responsible stewards of that which God has given you, but we all kind of know the deals that end in coveting, stealing, and oppressing. And let's just start from maybe something that we've all experienced. I have four younger siblings, and growing up as the oldest and for quite a while the strongest and smartest, although that may not hold true anymore, I could leverage all sorts of deals from my siblings. The penny is bigger than the dime. That's a good deal for me. Coveting, taking, and oppressing. We get better at it as we get older. And in fact, as a culture, we institutionalize it. The more wealth we have, the more likely it is that we're oblivious to this tendency. And part of the reason that we're oblivious to this tendency is because as we get older, we understand that it's kind of hard to just lie to that kid straight to their face and tell them that the penny's worth more. And so we create some distance. And so my good deal comes at the expense of people that I'll never see. And in fact, I prefer if it's hidden away, that my conscience doesn't have to be burdened with that so I can keep the self-deception alive. I'm just playing the game it's the way it's supposed to be played. This is what everybody does. How else am I supposed to survive? In fact, part of the reason that I'm struggling to come up with more concrete examples for you is because I think I myself am blinded to even in my own version of wealth, how I covet, steal, and oppress others and create distance between myself and them. The Lord, because he never sleeps, sees those devising wickedness and evil on their beds. And in verse three, it says he devises, same word, his own disaster. Now actually that word disaster and the word for evil it's actually also the same word. Now, of course, we understand that God doesn't work evil, um, which is why it's translated disaster, because vengeance uh, would be a little bit too strong, um, but discipline would be a little bit too weak. These who stay up all night worrying about protecting their own wealth and property and how to expand and enlarge it, God is worrying about how to bring about their end. So much so, this, this end will be so disastrous that in verse 4, these people that are going to be affected by God's wrath will cry out that they are utterly ruined in verse 4. Why are they utterly ruined? And because in verse 5, we see that they will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, this is a, a confusing phrase. I, I had to do some reading to remind, remind myself of uh, what exactly this means. So, 
uh, in Israel's mindset, uh, nobody quite owned the land. Um, God himself owned the land. And he allotted it by family and clans and tribes. And then they owned it in that sense and worked it and could sell it and buy it and pay off debts. Uh, and then every once in a while, there was a year of jubilee, and it all kind of returned back to the way that it was. But the idea was in Israel that although this temporary system works out, when God himself came to fulfill the rest of his promises and rule as he was supposed to, that he would divvy out allotments of land, and they would be permanent allotments of land. That in God's economy, actually, everything would work perfectly. So that land that you were allotted would be your wealth. And God here is saying, these people who were once my people, will no longer receive one of these allotments. These wicked, coveting, stealing, oppressing people wouldn't get an allotment for being part of God's people because they proved themselves not to be. Now there's an important order of events here. It's not that they were God's people uh, and just happened to goof up a couple of times. Or else, or else Micah's words would sink into their heart and their hearts of flesh would be ruptured and they would turn and repent of their wicked ways, turn back to covenantal faithfulness. But when Micah's words fall on deaf ears, those people were never God's people to begin with. You see, in this chapter, God is going back and forth and identifying a subgroup of Israel, a group that far from being his are in fact someone else's. In verse one, you can see that. He says, those people, not my people. Verse three, he says, this family, not my family. In verse 4, you kind of see this overlap. Those are speaking as if they were still my people. But in verse 8, my people have become an enemy. Even all the way into the end of verse 11, this people. What's at stake in our self-deception? Besides the evil that is coveting, stealing, and oppressing others, is actually proving ourselves to not be people of God's word. The danger of our wealth allows us to think that our material successes has come out of God's favor. And so we believe that we're right with God and we hear these words like this and as we're gonna see in a second, we stop up our ears and we say, don't preach this. God is faithful. God is loving. It is true. He is those things, but he also calls us to repentance, to leave our self-deception and be dependent upon him. If we lie awake at night because our wealth feels at stake, our property feels at stake, our stock portfolio feels at stake, we feel like our lives are about to be utterly ruined, we might need to really reflect on who we believe actually gives us rest. Because in this passage, the only one who gives rest is God. All of those other things can't provide it. Now, this self-deception, as I've already hinted at, um, is not only about this um, kind of 
assurance, over self-assurance. Um, but as we'll see continuing in verse 6 and 7, Michael will show us another self-deception. And this self-deception is that we tend to find people that will affirm our beliefs. We find false preachers. Again, I'm not speaking to the outside world here. I'm speaking to you in this room, which means I'm speaking to myself. When there is money, tithes, donations, a living to be made, there will be those who will want to tickle our ears, to say that it's all fine, that coveting, stealing, and oppressing are not that big of a deal, and that you can just move on with your life because God is faithful anyway. Again, I'm not saying that your wealth necessitates that you are out of favor with God, but what Micah is asking you to do is to saying, can you believe that you are actually capable of self-deception? That you have it within you to deceive, steal, oppress others. Our wealth creates tendencies for us to believe that God's highest priority for our lives is our own comfort and our own security. So, of course, he would bless us abundantly. Uh, But if you were to look at God's people generally throughout history, you would see that uh, that is sometimes the case. And God does promise these things eternally speaking in Jesus Christ, but that often his closest followers experienced the very opposite of comfort and security and peace, prosperity, and wealth. Even in Micah's day, He's speaking to the oppressors and the oppressed. And it's not that the oppressed, the ones who had their land stolen, are going to escape the exile any less that's coming in 120 years. In fact, they're going to get exiled too. That's why God can talk about a remnant. Those whose hearts will be made soft will repent and come back to covenantal faithfulness. But when there is wealth around... There is false preachers that abound, and they say this in verse 6, if you look there, and this is actually just like excellent mockery um, that Micah is using. And it's very likely that this is actually what other preachers were saying to him. Do not preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? That last phrase there, has the Lord grown impatient, is probably a reference to this ancient description that God gives of himself in Exodus. This is what God says about himself in Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Man, if you stopped right there, it seems like Micah's in the wrong, actually. It seems like the other preachers are in the right. God's always faithful, right? But if you were to continue reading right after that, in Exodus 34, you would read this. This God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
The collective self-deception of our wealth is that we can find people who tell us what we want to hear, who will preach the sermons to us that never ask us to look at our coveting, stealing, and oppression, who never call us back to covenantal faithfulness or to reflect on our covenantal unfaithfulness because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we must already be there because the confirmation is in my material wealth and prosperity. Clearly, God loves me. Brothers and sisters, this kind of preaching is all over our churches. And I'm not saying that I'm Micah either. I'm also reading these words and I'm understanding how deeply it causes me to reflect on those things that I would prefer not to say. For the sake of my own life, can it really mean that? Can I really be guilty of coveting, stealing, and oppressing? Am I willing to reflect upon my life? I'm tempted in my own wealth to preach that which is easy, which doesn't honestly challenge us. It might challenge us on a surface level, but not honestly to reevaluate our utter dependence upon the Lord to show us the depths of our own depravity. Because this would really be the worst is to stand up there and preach that you just need a little bit of salvation. Just a little bit of Jesus. And I want to be clear right now that we need a lot bit of salvation. We need a lot of Jesus. These false prophets um, are filled with wind and lies in verse 11. Uh, and at the end of verse 7, you actually see how uh, the Lord answers this kind of question um, about the use of their uh, uh, reference to Exodus 34. So, you know, like these false preachers were using Exodus 34, like, God is faithful and he loves you. And they conveniently leave off the end about not repenting of your sin. And God answers this and he says, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? And it's as if God was saying, I am merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, abundantly patient and forgiving with those who truly show themselves to be my people, to be my sheep, those who are willing to see the shame of their own actions, to stop lying to themselves and repent. You see these false prophets filled with wind and lies in verse 11. What's really interesting about that Hebrew word wind um, is that it's the same word for spirit, or breath. And so we kind of see this with uh, Adam and Eve, right? God breathes into them his spirit. But Adam and Eve reject God's spirit and they actually cling to their own. They say that they know what is best. They buy into the self-deception. And Micah is saying, we need this spirit. These false preachers in self-deception, they believe and preach as if they had the spirit of God, but what they have is the spirit of lies. They have the spirit of this people, not the spirit of God's people. And in verses 12 and 13, Micah knew, knew that the Israelites couldn't just be better. They needed more than simply moral reform. He's not standing up there saying, stop coveting, stealing uh, and oppressing, which of course he is, but he's like, how are you going to go about doing it? Do you have the spirit that is going to enable you to do it? 
Are you actually God's people? Again, it isn't simply that they were part of God's people and just happened to sin. They never were. And so used their sin as a shield. Used it to lie to themselves, to hide behind, say, clearly I'm doing right. It isn't that Christians today are God's people that just happen to sin. But there are people that claim Christianity and that want to use their successes to say, clearly I'm doing right. But the very words of the Lord don't penetrate their hearts. Can't call them back into covenantal faithfulness. You see, we need a new spirit. We need a better salvation, not just a little bit. We need someone that will gather us even in our blindness, that will restore us to who we were supposed to be, to lead us, to teach us, someone that will heal our covetousness, theft, and oppression, and vanquish those who hard-heartedly persist in their sins. And if you read verse 12, you see that this remnant is there that even in their blindness, they are gathered together and they are protected in a fold and led to pasture as sheep. And I love that God's description of this remnant people, of, of, of this group of men, is that it's a noisy multitude. There's almost some like paternal acknowledgement uh, that like your kids are noisy, you know, like my two-year-old is noisy and I like can complain about him a lot. But I wouldn't train that noise for anything, you know, that's what it means to have a two-year-old. It's like God has this like, yeah, I've got this sheepfold of remnant and they're kind of noisy, but they're mine. There's parental joy, but there's also parental protection. One who delivers, one who breaches through enemy lines and passes through the gate. It is a king and the king is God himself. Neither the people who work evil on their beds or those who were oppressed by those very people had the ability to save themselves. They needed God himself to come and defeat their own hard hearts. It appears that the Spirit of God is able to open the blindness of our own hearts, to allow us to repent and cry out and cast ourselves upon the ones whose words do good and cause us to up, walk uprightly. And Micah was pleading with his listeners to search out for this spirit, not their own spirit that leads to covetousness and oppression, but God's spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It is the seal that marks us as God's people, part of his flock, and there are many who try to imitate the work of the Spirit in their lives. And we're often so good at it that we have trouble discerning. But rest assured, God has no trouble discerning which Spirit you're operating out of. He knows who are His, the sheep of His pasture. See, Adam and Eve had that breath and Spirit of God, but they rejected Him. Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of John, breathes on his disciples. The Spirit of the living God 
breathed again into his people. The spirit that could break and rupture sin-hardened hearts, open the eyes of the blind to their sin. And it was breathed by the one who never coveted, never thieved, and never oppressed. But Jesus isn't just the one who gives us the spirit. He's the one that gathers his sheep, protects them in a fold. He actually spent time with a noisy multitude of followers, and he rejoiced over it. He is the king who breaches the most ancient enemy. He's not just conquering Assyria or Babylon or Rome, but Satan himself. And he breaks through the gates of death to bring dead things back to life. Jesus passes on before us, the very king in our midst, so that in the seeming destruction, exile, and abandonment, in the fear of losing our own possessions, property, and, and whatever else we hold dearly to in this life, in that fear, we can look with full eyes on Jesus and know that God is in our midst. We don't have to run to our own strength and schemes in the middle of the night, but his power can protect us. His promise and his faithfulness assures us that no matter what happens in this world, even in the midst of crumbling nation states and economies, even in the loss of everything that we hold dear, we know that all the land and all the money is the Lord's. And his promises still stand to his faithful remnant that when that day comes in Christ Jesus, the allotment will be given out and we will be with Jesus. He's calling us to walk uprightly, rely on his spirit and not our own, in his wealth and not ours, in his truth, not our own self-deception. The only way that our self-deception gets rent in two and then we're able to see ourselves for who we really are is by Jesus breaking that heart open by meeting him face to face, and for him to breathe new life into you by the power of his spirit. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we have deceived ourselves. We are utterly blind to our covetousness, theft, and oppression. And when we're challenged by Micah, our hearts recoil with the thought that we have done something so wrong. Father, make us a people that are willing to investigate ourselves, that are willing to question our motives, that are willing to ask you to show us why we do certain things, whether we are living in covenantal faithfulness. Father, forgive us for wanting to make scripture support our covenantal unfaithfulness. Forgive us for wanting to twist it to continue our own self-deception. Holy Spirit, as we asked you at the beginning of the sermon, illumine the text to us. Allow us communally and humbly to challenge one another, to point one another to Jesus, to God himself in our midst, who unblinds our eyes and shows us our sin, but who doesn't leave us there standing in our shame, but brings us protected into the sheepfold. 
heaven, allow us to return again to the best love, not these lesser things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.